This is a recording of Ancient Affinities within the LDS Book of Enoch, Part 2, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture. Volume 4, 2013, pages 29 through 73. Read by James Jensen. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited, and this for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Ancient Affinities Within the LDS Book of Enoch, Part 2 Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson Abstract in this article, we will examine affinities between ancient extra-canonical sources and a collection of modern revelations that Joseph termed, quote, extracts from the prophecy of Enoch, end quote. We build on the work of previous scholars, revisiting their findings with the benefit of subsequent scholarship. Following a perspective on the LDS canon and an introduction to the LDS Enoch revelations, we will focus on relevant passages in Pseudepigrapha and LDS scripture within three episodes in the Mormon Enoch narrative. Enoch's Prophetic Commission, Enoch's Encounters with the Giborim, and the Weeping and Exaltation of Enoch and His People. Having examined ancient affinities in the Prophetic Commission of Enoch, let us turn our attention to the events of his subsequent teaching mission. Enoch's Encounters with the Giborim the Book of Giants is a collection of fragments from an Enochic book discovered at Qumran. Though it is missing from the Ethiopic book of First Enoch, and resembles little else in the Enoch tradition, material related to the Book of Giants is included in Talmudic and medieval Jewish literature, in descriptions of the Manichaean canon, in citations by hostile heresiologists, and in 3rd and 4th century fragments from Turfan, published by Henning in 1943. Later, several fragments of a related work were identified among the Qumran manuscripts. These fragments showed that the, quote, composition is at least 500 years older than previously thought, end quote, and thus they help us, quote, to reconstruct the literary shape of the early stages of the Enochic tradition, end quote. Although the Book of Giants scarcely fills three pages in the English translation of Martinez, we find in it the most extensive series of parallels between a single ancient text and Joseph Smith's Enoch writings. Note that the term giants in the title of the book is somewhat misleading. Actually, this book describes two different groups of individuals, referred to in Hebrew as the Giborim and the Nephilim. In discussing the Giborim, we will use the customary connotation elsewhere in the Bible, of, quote, mighty hero, end quote, or, quote, warrior, end quote. In his Enoch writings, Joseph Smith specifically differentiated the, quote, giants, end quote, from Enoch's other adversaries. Consistent with the concept of the Giborim as, quote, mighty warriors, end quote, Joseph Smith's Enoch writings describe scenes of wars, bloodshed, and slaughter among the people. For example, in Moses 6, verse 15, we read, And the children of men were numerous upon all the face of the land. And in those days Satan had great dominion among men, and raged in their hearts. 
and from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed, and a man's hand was against his own brother in administering death because of secret works seeking for power. The Book of Giants account likewise begins with references to, quote, slaughter, destruction, and moral corruption, end quote, that filled the earth. The mention of secret works and administering death in the Book of Moses recalls a similar description in the Book of Giants. Quote, they knew the secrets and they killed many, end quote. Elsewhere, the Qumran manuscripts refer to the spread of the, quote, mystery of wickedness, end quote. In the book of Moses, Enoch's preaching first attracts listeners out of pure curiosity. Quote, and they came forth to hear him upon the high places, saying unto the tent keepers, Tarry ye here and keep the tents, while we go yonder to behold the seer. For he prophesieth, and there is a strange thing in the land, a wild man hath come among us. End quote. The term wild man is used in only one other place in the Bible, as part of Jacob's prophecy about the fate of Ishmael. We see a more fitting parallel, however, in a passage in the translation by Wise of the Book of Giants, where the wicked leader of the Giborim, Ohya, boasts that he is called the wild man, just as in the Book of Moses the same term is used sarcastically to describe Enoch. Then out of nowhere appears Mahija, the only named character besides Enoch himself in Joseph Smith's story of Enoch. Quote, and there came a man unto him, whose name was Mahija, and said unto him, Tell us plainly who thou art, and from whence thou comest. End quote. In the book of Moses, the name Mahija appears a second time in a different form as Mahuja. Likewise, in the Masoretic text of the Bible, the variants Mahija and Mahuja both appear in a single verse, with the suffix L, as reference to the same person, namely Mahuja L. Because the King James Version renders both variants identically, Joseph Smith would have had to access and interpret the Hebrew text to see both versions of the name. But there is no evidence that he or anyone else associated with the translation of Moses 6-7 through knew how to read Hebrew, or for that matter even had access to a Hebrew Bible. Joseph Smith did not begin his Hebrew studies until a few years later after he engaged Joshua Sykes as a teacher in Kirkland, Ohio. Moreover, even if it were postulated that Joseph Smith must have been working from the Hebrew, it would still be difficult to explain why, assuming that he indeed possessed this information, Joseph Smith would have chosen not to normalize the two variant versions of the name into a single version, as virtually all English translations of the Hebrew text have done. Instead, both of the attested variants of the name are included in the Book of Moses in appropriate contexts preserving both ancient traditions. Moreover, the Joseph Smith versions of the name drop the quote L and quote suffix to the name, thus differing from the Hebrew text of the Bible and in accord with its Dead Sea Scrolls equivalent, as we will describe. There are intriguing similarities not only in the name, but also in the role of the Mahaja Mahuja character in Joseph Smith's Book of Moses and the role of a character named Mahuja in the Book of Giants. Hugh Nibley observes, quote, The only thing the Mahaija in the book of Moses is remarkable for is his putting of bold, direct questions to Enoch. And this is exactly the role, and the only role, that the Aramaic Mahuja plays in the story. End quote. In the book of Giants, we read the report of a series of dreams that troubled the Giborim. 
The dreams, quote, symbolize the destruction of all but Noah and his sons by the flood, end quote. In an impressive correspondence to the questioning of Enoch by Mahijah in the book of Moses, the Giborim send one of their fellows named Mahujah to, quote, consult Enoch in order to receive an authoritative interpretation of the visions, end quote. In the book of Giants we read, quote, Then all the Giburim and the Nephilim called to Mahujah, and he came to them. They implored him and sent him to Enoch, the celebrated scribe, and they said to him, quote, Go and tell him to explain to you and interpret the dream, end quote. Sario comments, quote, The emphasis that Joseph Smith places on Mahijah's travel to Enoch is eerily similar to the account of Mahujah to Enoch in the Book of Giants. End quote. A reasonable case can be made for the identification of the Book of Giants Mahujah with the biblical Mahijael, who was a descendant of Cain and the grandfather of the wicked Lamech. The case for identification is only made stronger when we consider the additional material about Mehuja El's family line included in the Joseph Smith account. Note that in the book of Moses, Mehuja El's grandson, like the other, quote, sons of men, end quote, quote, entered into a covenant with Satan after the manner of Cain, end quote. Similarly, in First Enoch, we read that a group of conspirators, here depicted as fallen sons of God, Quote, all swore together and bound one another with a curse. End quote. Elsewhere in First Enoch, we learn additional details about that oath. Quote, this is the number of Casbael, the chief of the oath, which he showed to the holy ones when he was dwelling on high in glory, and its or his name is Baca. This one told Michael that he should show him the secret name so that they might mention it in the oath so that those who showed the sons of men everything that was in secret might quake at the name and the oath, end quote. The passages in First Enoch are reminiscent of a passage in the book of Moses that describes a, quote, secret combination, end quote, that had been in operation, quote, from the days of Cain, end quote. As to the deadly nature of the oath, we read in the book of Moses, quote, Swear unto me by thy throat, and if thou tell it, thou shalt die, end quote. Just as in First Enoch, the conspirators, quote, bound one another with a curse, end quote. In First Enoch, the conspirators agreed on their course of action by saying, quote, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, end quote. Likewise, in the book of Moses, Mehujael's grandson became infamous because he took unto himself wives, to whom he revealed the secret of their wicked league, to the chagrin of his fellows. In First Enoch, as in the book of Moses, we also read specifically how, quote, they all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and children, end quote. In answer to the second part of Mahijah's question, Joseph Smith's Enoch says, quote, And he said unto them, I came out from the land of Canaan, the land of my fathers, a land of righteousness unto this day, end quote. Amplifying the book of Moses' description of Enoch's home as a, quote, land of righteousness, end quote, the leader of the Giborim in the Book of Giants says that his, quote, opponents, end quote, quote, reside in the heavens and live with the holy ones, end quote. In the Book of Moses, Enoch describes the setting for his vision, quote, and it came to pass, as I journeyed from the land of Canaan by the sea east, I beheld a vision, end quote. Enoch's vision as he traveled by the sea east recalls the direction of his journey in First Enoch 20 through 36, where he traveled, quote, 
from the west edge of the earth to its east edge, end quote. Elsewhere, first Enoch records a vision that Enoch received, quote, by the waters of Dan, end quote, arguably a, quote, sea east, end quote. In preaching to the people, the Enoch of the book of Moses refers to a, quote, book of remembrance, end quote, in which the words of God and the actions of the people were recorded. Correspondingly, in the book of Giants, a book in the form of, quote, two stone tablets, end quote, is given by Enoch to Mahuja to stand as a witness of, quote, their fallen state and betrayal of their ancient covenants, end quote. In the book of Moses, Enoch says the book is written, quote, according to the pattern given by the finger of God, end quote. This may allude to the idea that a similar record of their wickedness is kept in heaven as attested in First Enoch. Quote, do not suppose to yourself nor say in your heart that they do not know nor are your unrighteous deeds seen in heaven, nor are they written down before the Most High. Henceforth know that all your unrighteous deeds are written down day by day until the day of your judgment. End quote. As Enoch is linked with the Book of Remembrance in the Book of Moses, so he is described in the Testament of Abraham as the heavenly being who is responsible for recording the deeds of mankind so that they can be brought into remembrance. Likewise, in Jubilees 10, verse 17, we read, quote, Enoch had been created as a witness to the generations of the world so that he might report every deed of each generation in the day of judgment, End quote. In the book of Moses, Enoch's reading of the book of remembrance put the people in great fear. Quote, and as Enoch spake forth the words of God, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence. End quote. Likewise, in the book of Giants, we read that the leaders of the mighty warriors quote, bowed down and wept in front of Enoch. End quote. First Enoch describes a similar reaction after Enoch finished his preaching. Quote, then I, that is Enoch, went and spoke to all of them together, and they were all afraid and trembling, and fear seized them. And they asked that I write a memorandum of petition for them, that they might have forgiveness, and that I recite the memorandum of petition for them in the presence of the Lord of heaven. For they were no longer able to speak or to lift their eyes to heaven, out of shame for the deeds through which they had sinned and for which they had been condemned. And they were sitting and weeping at Abel Main, covering their faces. End quote. Among the declaration that Joseph Smith's Enoch makes to his hearers from the Book of Remembrance is that their children, quote, are conceived in sin, end quote. This has nothing to do with the concept of original sin, but rather is the result of their moral transgressions. As Nibley expresses it, quote, The wicked people of Enoch's day did indeed conceive their children in sin, since they were illegitimate offspring of a totally amoral society, end quote. The relevant passage in the Book of Giants reads, quote, let it be known to you that your activity and that of your wives and of your children through your fornication. End quote. Both the Qumran and the Joseph Smith sermons of Enoch end on a note of hope, a feature unique to these two Enoch accounts. Quote, if thou wilt turn unto God and hearken unto my voice and believe and repent of all thy transgressions. End quote. In the book of Giants, Enoch also gives hope to the wicked through repentance. Quote, now then, unfasten your chains of sin and pray. In addition, Reeves conjectures that another difficult to reconstruct phrase in the Book of Giants might also be understood as an allusion to a probationary period for the repentance of the giants. 
Any conjectured move toward repentance was temporary, however, and eventually Enoch's enemies began to attack, as we read in the book of Moses, quote, And so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God, and their enemies came to battle against them. And he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled, and the mountains fled, even according to his command, and the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness, end quote. Similarly, in the book of Giants, Ohia, a leader of the Giborim, gives a description of his defeat in such a battle. Quote, I am a mighty warrior, and by the mighty strength of my arm and my own great strength I went up against all mortals, and I have made war against them, but I am not able to stand against them. End quote. A special note is a puzzling phrase in Martinez's translation of the book of Giants that immediately follows the description of the battle. Quote, the roar of the wild beasts has come, and they bellowed a feral roar. End quote. Remarkably, the Book of Moses account has a similar phrase following the battle description, recording that quote, the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness. End quote. Both the Book of Moses and the Book of Giants contains a quote, prediction of utter destruction and the confining in prison that is to follow end quote, for the Giborim. From the Book of Moses, we read. Quote, but behold, these shall perish in the floods, and behold, I will shut them up, a prison have I prepared for them. End quote. Similarly, in the book of Giants, we read, He imprisoned us and has power over us. Note that the parallels with the book of Giants we have cited are not drawn at will from a large corpus of Enoch manuscripts, but rather are concentrated in a scant three pages of Qumran fragments. These resemblances range from general themes in the storyline, secret works, murders, visions, earthly and heavenly books of remembrance that evoke fear and trembling, moral corruption, hope held out for repentance, and the eventual defeat of Enoch's adversaries in battle, ending with their utter destruction and imprisonment, to specific occurrences of rare expressions in corresponding contexts, the reference to the wild man, the name and parallel role of Mahija Muhuja, and the roar of the wild beasts. It would be thought remarkable if any 19th century document were to exhibit a similar density of close resemblances with this small collection of ancient fragments, but to find such similarities in appropriate contexts relating in each case to the story of Enoch is astonishing. The Weeping and Exaltation of Enoch and His People In a vision of Enoch found in the Book of Moses, three distinct parties weep for the wickedness of mankind, God, the heavens, and Enoch himself. In addition, a fourth party, the earth, mourns, though does not specifically weep for her children. Daniel Peterson has discussed the interplay among the members of this chorus of weeping voices, citing the argument of non-LDS biblical scholar J. J. M. Roberts that identify three similar voices within the laments of the book of Jeremiah. The feminine voice of the mother of the people, corresponding in the book of Moses to the voice of the earth, the mother of men the voice of the people corresponding to Enoch, and the voice of God himself. In addition, with regard to the complaints of the earth described in Moses 7, verse 48 and 49, valuable articles by Andrew Skinner and Peterson, again following Nibley's lead, discuss interesting parallels in ancient sources. Finally, taking up the subject of previously neglected voices of weeping, namely the weeping of Enoch and that of the heavens, 
we have written, with the additional contributions of Jacob Brenneker, a comparative study of ancient texts. We will not attempt a summary of these discussions. However, below we will sketch and extend previous analysis of the weeping of Enoch and of God, while noting resonances between ancient literature and the book of Moses. The tradition of a weeping prophet is perhaps best exemplified by Jeremiah, who cried out in sorrow, quote, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. End quote. Less well known is the story of Enoch as a weeping prophet. In First Enoch, his words are very near to those of Jeremiah. Quote, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of water, that I might weep over you. I would pour out my tears as a cloud of water, and I would rest from the grief of my heart. End quote. We find the pseudepigraphal Enoch, like Enoch in the book of Moses, weeping in response to visions of mankind's wickedness. Following the second of these visions, in the first Enoch account, the prophet is recorded as saying, quote, And after that I wept bitterly, and my tears did not cease until I could no longer endure it. But they were running down because of what I had seen. I wept because of it, and I was disturbed because I had seen the vision. End quote. Enoch's weeping is not only the result of his visions, but also a precursor to additional ones. For example, in the Cologne Mani Codex, Enoch's tearful sorrow is directly followed by an angelophany. Quote, While the tears were still in my eyes, and the prayer was yet on my lips, I beheld approaching me seven angels descending from heaven. Upon seeing them, I was so moved by fear that my knees began knocking. End quote. A description of a similar set of events is found in Second Enoch, which Moshe Idel called the earliest evidence for mystical weeping. Quote, in the first month, on the assigned day of the first month, I was in my house alone, weeping and grieving with my eyes. When I had lain down on my bed, I fell asleep, and two huge men appeared to me, the like of which I had never seen on earth. End quote. The same sequence of events, Enoch's weeping and grieving followed by a heavenly vision, can be found in modern Revelation within the song recorded in Joseph Smith's Revelation Book 2. Quote, Enoch gazed upon nature and the corruption of man, and mourned their sad fate, and wept, and cried out with a loud voice, and heaved forth his sighs. Omnipotence, omnipotence, oh may I see thee. And with his finger God touched his eyes, and Enoch saw heaven. He gazed on eternity, and sang an angelic song. End quote. Turning from the weeping of Enoch to the weeping of God, the relevant passage in the book of Moses begins as follows. Quote, and it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch said unto the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? The Lord said unto Enoch, Behold these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. And I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them. And in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me, their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. End quote. Because of its eloquent rebuke of the idea of divine impassibility, the notion that God does not suffer pain or distress, this passage that speaks of the voice of the weeping God has received the greatest share of attention in LDS scholarship compared to the other voices of weeping, eliciting the pioneering notices of Hugh Nibley, 
followed by lengthy articles by Eugene England and Daniel C. Peterson. Most recently, a book relating to the topic has been written by Terrell and Fiona Givens. They eloquently summarize the significance of this passage as follows. Quote, the question here is not about the reasons behind God's tears. Enoch does not ask, Why do you weep? But rather, How are your tears even possible, seeing thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? Clearly Enoch, who believed God to be merciful and kind forever, did not expect such a being could be moved to the point of distress by the sins of his children. And so a third time he asks, How is it that thou canst weep? The answer, it turns out, is that God is not exempt from emotional pain. Exempt? On the contrary, God's pain is as infinite as his love. He weeps because he feels compassion. As the Lord explains to Enoch, Unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. And misery shall be their doom, and the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? It is not their wickedness, but their misery, not their disobedience, but their suffering that elicits the God of heaven's tears. Not until Gethsemane and Golgotha does the scriptural record reveal so unflinchingly the costly investment of God's love in his people, the price at which he placed his heart upon them. There could be nothing in the universe, or any possible universe, more perfectly good, absolutely beautiful, worthy of adoration, and deserving of emulation, than this God of love and kindness and vulnerability. That is why a gesture of belief in his direction, a decision to acknowledge his virtues as the paramount qualities of a divided universe, is a response to the best in us, the best and noblest of which the human soul is capable. But a God without passions would engender in our hearts neither love nor interest. In the vision of Enoch we find ourselves drawn to a God who prevents all the pain he can, assumes all the suffering he can, and weeps over the misery he can neither prevent nor assume. End quote. Joseph Smith's account of a God who weeps for human misery can be contrasted with Jed Woodworth's observation that the God in First Enoch shows remorse quote, only after it becomes obvious that the floods did not have the desired effect. End quote. In First Enoch, according to Woodworth, quote, God is most concerned with exacting maximum justice destroy all the souls addicted to dalliance, he tells his righteous angels. Then bind the wicked for seventy generations underneath the earth, even to the day of judgment, when they will be taken away into the lowest depths of the fire and torments, and in confinement shall they be shut up forever. Enoch's angel guide tells him how four of God's faithful servants, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Phanuel, will be given special powers to cast them, the ungodly, into a furnace of blazing fire, that the Lord of Spirits may be avenged of them for their crimes. The crimes are so great, never shall they obtain mercy, saith the Lord of Spirits. Only crimes worthy of sentences without parole, it seems, could exonerate God from sending out the floods. Unlike the God in First Enoch, the God in Joseph Smith works for maximum mercy. When the wicked reject Enoch's entreaties, God does not jump to send the flood, but rather a second wave of servants. Immediately after seeing the earth's inhabitants in Satan's grasp, Enoch beholds angels descending out of heaven bearing testimony of the Father and the Son. 
The Holy Ghost falls upon those who hearken, and they are caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. Even at the midnight hour, Zion is still enlarging her borders to include those who will turn from their evil ways. Those who refuse the invitation bring God great pain. Looking down from the heavens, God weeps for his wicked, even as the rains upon the mountains. He anguishes for those who reject their father, and who now hate their own blood. Not only he suffers, but also the whole heaven shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. When the floods finally come, we feel them as sobs of remorse, not as rains of retribution. What is the fate of those who perish in the flood? In First Enoch there is one fate only, everlasting punishment. Those who are destroyed in the flood are beyond redemption. For God to be reconciled, sinners must suffer forever. Enoch has nothing to say because God has no merciful side to appeal to. In Joseph Smith, however, punishment has an end. The merciful side of God allows Enoch to speak and be heard. God and Enoch speak a common language, mercy. Lift up your heart and be glad and look, God says to Enoch after the flood. There is hope for the wicked yet. Quote, I will shut them up, a prison have I prepared for them. And that which I have chosen hath fled before my face. Wherefore, he suffereth for their sins, inasmuch as they will repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me. And until that day they shall be in torment. The Messiah figure in First Enoch 45-47 through and in Joseph Smith function in different ways. In Joseph Smith, the chosen one will come to earth at the meridian of time to rescue the sinners of Enoch's day. After the Messiah's death and resurrection, as many of the spirits as were in prison came forth and stood on the right hand of God. The Messiah figure in First Enoch does not come down to earth and is peripheral to the text. He presides over the elect around God's throne, but does not rescue the sinners of Enoch's day. In the day of trouble, evil shall still be heaped upon sinners, he tells Enoch. End quote. Clearly, there are wide differences between First Enoch and the Book of Moses in their projections of the fate of the antediluvian sinners. That established, can any ancient parallels for the weeping god of Joseph Smith be found in other extra-canonical accounts of Enoch? Remarkably, such a passage does appear in the Midrash Rabbah on Lamentations, which portrays Enoch as weeping in likeness of God as a consequence of the destruction of the Israelite temple. We have found no similar scene in the ancient literature relating to any other prophet, but here in the Midrash Rabbah and in the Book of Moses we find it specifically connected with Enoch. Quote, At that time the Holy One, blessed be he, wept and said, Woe is me, what have I done? I caused my Shekinah to dwell below on earth for the sake of Israel. But now that they have sinned, I have returned to my former habitation. At that time Metatron, who was Enoch in his glorified state, came, fell upon his face, and spake before the Holy One, blessed be he. Sovereign of the universe, let me weep, but do thou not weep. He replied to him, if thou lettest me not weep now, I will repair to a place which thou hast not permission to enter, and will weep there, as it is said, but if he will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret for pride. Jeremiah 13.17 The withdrawal of the divine presence through the loss of the temple that provoked God's weeping in Midrash Rabbah is a fitting analogue to the taking up of Enoch Zion from the earth in the book of Moses. Whereas in Midrash Rabbah, God withdraws his presence because of the wickedness of the people, the account in the book of Moses has God removing the city of Enoch in its entirety from among the wicked nations that surround it because of its righteousness.
The two pericopes may have more in common than is immediately apparent. A study of Jewish literature reveals a significant correspondence between Zion and the Shekinah, divine presence. Zion is often personified as the bride of God. Shekinah is a feminine noun in Hebrew and often associated with the female personified wisdom. It is likewise described in later Jewish writings as the bride of God. In short, the idea of Zion being taken up and the Shekinah being withdrawn are parallel motifs, a topic treated extensively by David Larson elsewhere. All this aside, it is our view that the most important thrust of the parallel passages in Mirash Rabbah and the Book of Moses is not the parallel motif of the withdrawal of the presence of God from the earth, but rather the sympathetic union of God and Enoch in their sorrow. Enoch in Midrash Rabbah, like Enoch in the Book of Moses, judges the emotional display to be inappropriate for the holy, eternal God, and responds with his personal commiseration. The weeping of Enoch is not merely significant in its own right, but also because, according to the Gibbonses, it is an illustration, quote, of what the actual process of acquiring the divine nature requires. Enoch is raised to a perspective from which he sees the world through God's eyes. End quote. In the book of Moses we read, And it came to pass the Lord spake unto Enoch, and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men. Wherefore Enoch knew, and looked upon their wickedness and their misery, and wept, and stretched forth his arms. And his heart swelled wide as eternity, and his bowels yearned, and all eternity shook. The idea of raising the prophet to a level approaching Godhood through shared sorrow with the divine is explored at length by theologian Terence Fretheim. Fretheim argues that the prophet's sympathy with the divine pathos was not merely contemplating the divine, but instead a result of the prophet's elevation to become a member of the divine council. He writes, quote, the fact that the prophets are said to be part of this council indicates something of the intimate relationship they had with God. The prophet was somehow drawn up into the very presence of God. Even more, the prophet was in some sense admitted into the history of God. The prophet becomes a party to the divine story. The heart and mind of God pass over into that of the prophet to such an extent that the prophet becomes a veritable embodiment of God. End quote. Not surprising, then, in the aftermath of Enoch's soul-stretching emulation of, quote, divine pathos, end quote, in the book of Moses, is that the weeping prophet is given a right to the divine throne. Says Joseph Smith's Enoch to God, quote, thou hast given unto me a right to thy throne, end quote. The book of Moses motif of granting access to the divine throne is nowhere more at home than in the pseudepigraphal Enoch literature. For example, in Third Enoch, Enoch declares, quote, The Holy One, blessed be he, made for me a throne like the throne of glory, and sat me down upon it. End quote. Summarizing other ancient literature relevant to this passage, Charles Mopsick concludes that the exaltation of Enoch is not meant to be seen as a singular event. Rather, he writes that the quote, enthronement of Enoch is a prelude to the transfiguration of the righteous, and at their head the Messiah in the world to come, a transfiguration that is the restoration of the figure of the perfect man, end quote. Following this ideological trajectory to its full extent, Mormons see the perfect man, with a capital M, into whose form the Messiah and Enoch and all the righteous are transfigured, as God the Father, of whom Adam, the first mortal man, is a type. Fittingly, as part of Joseph Smith's account of Enoch's vision, 
God proclaims his primary identity to be that of an endless and eternal man declaring, quote, Man of holiness is my name, end quote. Given the identity of God the Father as the man of holiness, the title Son of Man, which is a notable feature of the book of parables in First Enoch, and also appears in marked density through the book of Moses' vision of Enoch, is perfectly intelligible within LDS theology. So are the related titles of Chosen One, Anointed One, and Righteous One, that appear prominently both in First Enoch and the LDS Enoch story. After considering the sometimes contentious debate among scholars about the single or multiple reference of these titles and their relationship to other texts, Nicholsberg and Vanderkam conclude that the author of First Enoch, like the author of the Book of Moses, quote, saw the traditional figures as having a single referent and applied various designations and characteristics as seemed appropriate to him, end quote. Consistent with texts found at Nag Hammadi, Joseph Smith's Enoch straightforwardly equates the filial relationship between God and his only begotten Son in the New Testament to the Enochic notion of the perfect man and the Son of Man as follows, quote, Man of holiness is God's name, and the name of the only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge, who shall come in the meridian of time, end quote. Note that the single specific description of the role of the Son of Man given in the verse from the book of Moses as a righteous judge is highly characteristic of the book of parables within First Enoch, where the primary role of the Son of Man is also that of a judge. Reviewing the passages in First Enoch, Nicholsburg and Vanderkam conclude, quote, If the central message of the parables is the coming of the final judgment, the Son of Man, Chosen One, takes center stage as the agent of this judgment. End quote. As Mopsik observed, however, the story does not end here. Recall his conclusion that the quote, enthronement of Enoch is a prelude to the transfiguration of the righteous and at their head the Messiah in the world to come. End quote. Indeed, in one of Joseph Smith's revelations, this idea is made explicit in the idea that these righteous will be ordained quote, after the order of Melchizedek, which was after the order of Enoch, which was after the order of the only begotten Son. Wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God. End quote. Unlike priesthood ordinations performed by men, the ordinance that conveys this power is administered directly by God himself, just as this status was conferred upon Enoch as part of his heavenly ascent. Quote, and the high priesthood after the order of the covenant which God made with Enoch was delivered unto men by the calling of God's own voice. End quote. In another of Joseph Smith's revelations, we are told that all of God's earthly children are called, in essence, sons of man with the potential to become perfect even as their Father which is in heaven is perfect. Making explicit the role of the Son of Man as the forerunner for the sons of man, the resurrected Jesus Christ varies this statement slightly in the Book of Mormon. Quote, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. End quote. In his insightful discussion of the Greek word teleos, translated, quote, perfect, end quote, in Matthew, John Welch writes, Quote, in commanding the people to, quote, be perfect even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect, end quote. It seems that Jesus had several things in mind besides perfection as we usually think of it. Whatever he meant, it involved the idea of becoming like God even as I or your Father who is in heaven, which occurs by seeing God and knowing God. 
These ultimate realities can be represented ceremonially in this world. For as Joseph Smith taught, it is through the ordinances of the temple that we are instructed more perfectly. End quote. This last statement brings us to the subject of Enoch and the temple. Hugh Nibley cited Keku as saying that Enoch is, quote, in the center of a study of matters dealing with initiation in the literature of Israel. Enoch is the great initiate who becomes the great initiator. The Hebrew book of Enoch bore the title of Hekelot, referring to the various chambers or stages of initiation in the temple. Enoch, having reached the final stage, becomes the Metatron to initiate and guide others. I will not say but what Enoch had temples and officiated therein, said Brigham Young, but we have no accounts of it. Today, we do have such accounts. End quote. In line with the theme of Enoch as a forerunner in the transfiguration of the righteous is the Book of Moses' idea that Enoch succeeded in bringing a whole people to be sufficiently pure in heart to fully live the law of consecration. In Zion, the city of holiness, the people were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, and there were no poor among them. We are told that not only Enoch, but also all his people walked with God, and they were eventually taken into heaven with him. Quote, and Enoch and all his people walked with God, and he dwelt in the midst of Zion, and it came to pass that Zion was not, for God received it up into his own bosom, and from thence went forth the saying, Zion is fled. End quote. This topic is treated extensively by David Larson elsewhere. In LDS temples, the promise of being received into God's own bosom like Enoch and his people, is extended to all those who prepare themselves to receive it through the sanctifying power of Christ. One of Joseph Smith's revelations identifies Zion with the pure in heart. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, The reward of the pure in heart is that they shall see God. Therefore, the Lord told Joseph Smith, Sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. Remember the great and last promise which I have made unto you. Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 68 and 69. Thus end the Enoch chapters in the book of Moses. Conclusion In a recent discussion of Mormon theology, Stephen Webb concludes that Joseph Smith, quote, knew more about theology and philosophy than it was reasonable for anyone in his position to know, as if he were dipping into the deep collective unconsciousness of Christianity with a very long pen. End quote. More significantly, the prophet recovered a story of Enoch that manifests a deep understanding of what it means to become a partaker of the divine nature, and in that process become a partner with God himself in the salvation and exaltation of his children being raised to a perspective from which we see the world through God's eyes. Those who wish to follow the path of Enoch, which is the same path that was laid out by the great Redeemer, must take upon themselves its sufferings with its glory. Nowhere is this fact more apparent than in the ordinances of Mormon temples, where, as Truman Madsen observed, quote, a full-scale covenant relationship, the atonement of Christ may be written, as it were, in our very flesh, end quote. One is obliged, writes Eugene Sage, to become not only one flesh with Christ, but also one life, one sacrifice, thus participating actively in the eternal act of love which began in the heavens. Acknowledgements 
We appreciate the kindness of Jared Ludlow, Stephen D. Ricks, David Calabro, and Chris Viasnik in providing helpful comments and suggestions on an earlier draft of this article. Dan Bachman pointed our attention to the thesis of Salvatore Cerillo. We also extend our thanks to Tim Guyman for his expert assistance with technical editing and Alison Kutz for her long labors in typesetting and proofreading this article. Addendum After part one of this study appeared, we became aware of a publication by Samuel Zinner that relates to allusions to the baptism of Jesus Christ in Moses 6, 26, and 27 that were discussed in that article. The allusion to baptism in those verses relating to the call of Enoch is strengthened by parallel wording in the later account of the descent of the Spirit at the baptism of Adam. Moses 6, 65, quote, The Spirit of God descended upon him, end quote, followed by a, quote, Voice out of heaven, end quote, Moses 6, 66, and a declaration of the sonship of Adam, Moses 6, 68, quote, Behold, thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons, end quote. Since God the Father is declared to be the, quote, man of holiness, end quote, in Moses 6, 57, the titles, quote, son of God, end quote, and, quote, son of man, end quote, can be equated. Zinner compares Hebrews chapter 1, 5, and 6 to passages relating to the Father's declaration of sonship at the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel of the Ebionites and the Gospel of the Hebrews. He also notes that the motifs of, quote, rest, end quote, and, quote, reigning, end quote, co-occur in these three texts as well as in the Coptic Gospel of Thomas. Finally, he argues for a, quote, striking isomorphism, end quote, shared between First Enoch and the baptismal allusion in the Gospel of the Ebionites, in a promise made by Enoch to the righteous, quote, And a bright light will shine upon you, and the voice of rest you will hear from heaven, end quote. In light of these, and additional passages relating these themes to the personage of the, quote, Son of Man, end quote, Zinner argues for the likelihood that the idea behind all these passages, quote, arose in an Enochic matrix, End quote. Hence the strange reference to Jesus' baptism in the book of Moses' account of the calling of Enoch, which on the face of it originally might have been looked upon as an obvious anachronism, has turned out to be a passage with plausible Enochic affinities and possible Enochic origins. This has been a recording of Ancient Affinities Within the LDS Book of Enoch Part 2 by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 29 through 73, read by James Jensen.